The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it, for it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go get them. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey again, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get to Deuteronomy 24. That's where we're going to hang out. If you, don't know, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you want one and you don't own one, there should be some on the chair backs uh, somewhere in your aisle. Hopefully, maybe we're still figuring it out together. Uh, but if there is one there and you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Read it. I would start in the Gospel of John, encounter Jesus, put your faith in him, and join our church. That'd be great. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, uh, I got a lot to get through today, and we'll see what happens. Uh, let's pray, though, and ask the Lord to, to be with us. Amen. 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 It's going to be fun. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you are true and lasting. God, that you have spoken to us as your people. That though we deserve nothing, you've given us everything. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude. This morning, as we consider your words, we consider your laws, we consider your reality and what it means to live life in your kingdom, under your rule and reign, and yet with you, as your children. Oh, we love you. We need you. God, would you do what only you can do by the power of your spirit, and plant your word into our hearts that we would actually be different. God, I am unable, with any witty joke, clever turn of a phrase or insightful point to change hearts. You have to do what only you can do. Would you tear down the walls that we have up against you right now? Speak. We love you. We need you. Probably since in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my second grade teacher uh, was a lady by the name of Miss Byers. I promise you, I probably had her first name. I just didn't know it because when you're in second grade, you call your teacher Miss or Mrs. Whatever. So she was Miss Byers, and Miss Byers was everything you would imagine a second grade teacher to be. A full head of white hair. She was at least over the age of 85, if even that young. And she was wonderful and she was fantastic. But there was one thing in particular that she could not get over, and that was getting it into our minds as eight-year-olds the necessity of the correct use of the word can. She was such a stickler on this. So much so that when you raised your hand in second grade and you said, Miss Byers, can I go to the bathroom? She would look at you in all of her 80 or so odd years of snarkiness and say, I don't know, Timmy, because that's what she would call me. I don't know, Timmy, can you? Which is very embarrassing for an eight-year-old to be asked that, because it's like, yes, I can. And what she was trying to get the point across was, it's not can I go to the bathroom, it's what? May I go to the bathroom? And she had this one phrase in particular that she would repeat over and over and over again. She said, class, I need you to understand this. When it comes to the English language, there is a difference between can and should. Same difference there. And there's another difference between can't and won't. She repeated this all the time in our English section of second grade. She would say, there's a difference between can and should. Just because you can do 
should do something, and there's a difference between can't and won't, which is an important lesson to teach eight-year-olds, right? Because often when you're that age and you're kind of growing up into maturity and you fail at something the first time, what do you often say? I just can't do it. And she wanted us to understand, no, 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 class, there is a distinct difference between can't and won't. I think that's an important lesson to kind of tuck away in the back of your brains for this sermon. I promise I'll bring it back up at the end. But there is a distinct difference, church, as we'll see in Deuteronomy 24, between can't and won't. When it comes to our generosity, when it comes to our ability to give as the Lord has given much to us, there is a distinct difference between can't and won't. Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's going to take me a minute just to kind of unpack the passage for us, and then we'll come around to that phrase and our application in a little bit. Deuteronomy 24. I know Ellen just read it, but let's read it again. It's short. Verse 19. The Lord says to the Israelites, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. What we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 24 is we're in the middle of God giving his law or his commands to the people of Israel. So you might be familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? That's kind of the summation of the law. But in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God is expounding on those commands, ways that that we should live or the Israelites should live in light of him and his holiness and being his set-apart people. And here specifically, God is addressing the farming practices of the Israelites, But this is not a small issue, right? This is not like your little micro crop in the back of your uh, apartment or whatever where you're growing cucumbers. This is like their livelihood, okay? In an agrarian society, when they considered their farming, that was everything to them. It was their sustenance. It was how they provided for their family. And so each year, like good farmers do, they would plant crops, wheat or olives or grapes or a whole host of other things. And then you would go out at the time of harvest. You would gather what you had worked all year to grow. And that was how you provided for your family. Either you would trade those for other goods or you would turn them into edible food, whatever the course may be. Now, in that society, their tools for harvesting wasn't quite as sophisticated as it is today. So Lindsay's extended family, they are all wheat farmers and cattle farmers in the panhandle of Texas. And the technology they have today is absolutely incredible. And what I mean by that is you can literally get in your tractor, set a GPS to the exact specifications of how much you want to harvest, sit in air conditioning, and read a book or feed your baby. And I know that because they do both of those things. It's like a Roomba for corn. It's wild (laughs) these days what they do. I mean, it's absolutely insane. That's not how it was back then. So in that day, when you harvested your grain, you would either go out and buy hand or with a tool attached to the back of an oxen cart, you would take up or pick up everything that you had grown. And so in order to get all of the abundant harvest you had worked all year to grow, you had to go back more than one time. You had to go back a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, as many times as it takes to make sure you gather all of the crop that you should harvest. But God comes along, and he says, okay, Israel, I want you to do this practice differently than every other nation around you. God, from the very beginning, has been about countercultural discipleship. Amen. 
He says, I want you to do this completely different. Rather than going back out time and time and time again to maximize your intake, I don't even want you to go back out a second time. Gather what you can in one trip and leave the rest out there and don't go back for it at all. In fact, if you've already bundled the grain together and you just forgot to take it into the barn, sorry, leave it. Don't even take what you've already gathered and bundled together. Go one time, take it into the barn, and leave the rest. This practice is what's taking place in the book of Ruth. If you remember us covering that book earlier this year, Boaz leaves behind some of his harvest for Ruth and for Naomi and the rest of the widows to be cared for and provided for. Uh, Jesus and his disciples benefit from this practice. In the book of Matthew, they're walking through the grain field on Sabbath, and they're eating what was left over from the harvest. It's reworded in Leviticus 19, where God says it this way. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So God, once again, commands the Israelites, do not gather as much as you possibly can. In fact, intentionally leave some behind for those in need, namely the sojourner, that's the foreigner or the immigrant who does not have land, cannot provide for themselves, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. Now, this is a wonderfully applicable text to us today as modern Western, most of us non-farmers. Any farmers in the room? Sweet, I can say whatever I want. (laughs) So wonderfully applicable text, if we understand how to read and apply God's law. It is my experience as a pastor that when it comes to Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular, these Old Testament commands or laws of God, that there's just a lot of confusion, right? Like you might find yourself asking these questions or heard people asking these questions like, do I have to obey them? Like, which ones do I have to obey? Why does it seem like we kind of cherry pick? Like, we follow these commands, but we don't follow these other commands. I thought we were New Testament Christians. I thought we were post-gospel. Like, I thought we were, like, living under grace, not under law. What does this have to do with me? Do we just throw it out? How do we read this text? And so let me just try to help us out. Before we apply Deuteronomy 24 to our lives, I just want to help us be a little bit better Bible readers. Is that okay? Can I do that? It's part of my job. Sweet. When it comes to reading, and there's like nothing more talk back. That'd be wonderful. Uh, when it comes to reading and applying the Old Testament commands or law of God, it's important to remember three things. Three kind of principles for how you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is just going to unlock your quiet times when I know we all run to Deuteronomy 24. All right? Three things. Number one, I said up to you like last night. I apologize. <laughs> the law of God can be broken into three categories civil, ceremonial, and moral. The law of God can be broken into three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil laws are those given by God to govern the nation of Israel. So Israel was what you would call a theocracy. They were a nation directly under the kingship and rule of God. We do not live under a theocracy, right? We live in a democracy, or I guess a representative republic, if you want to be more specific. We don't have, though God is our king as Christians, God is not the literal king of America, like the Israelite nation was designed. And so what scholars have always agreed upon is that when it comes to the civil commands of God in his law, you apply those as principles, not as direct one-for-one rules. Second type of law is the ceremonial law. 
these laws from God governed Israelite worship. This was how they were to worship when they went into the tabernacle or the temple, the types of sacrifices they were to offer, the various ways they were approaching God pre-cross in his holiness by faith to worship him. This has been different and changed now post-Jesus, right? Jesus preaches one time and he says, in the future, people will not worship me in the temple, rather they will worship me by spirit and truth. He reworks the whole thing. When he dies on the cross, the, t- the curtain in the temple is torn in to showing God's spirit now no longer lives in the temple and now lives in all of us who put our faith in Jesus. So that changes how we think about the ceremonial laws. The third category is the moral law. And moral laws are those that are overarchingly applicable today. So think about things like do not murder, still applicable today. Do not steal, still applicable today. Do not commit adultery, still applicable today. Overarching rules and laws of holiness that would still apply to us today, even in 2022 Charlotte, North Carolina. Dragon? All right, let me give you an example. Leviticus 19, 27 and 28. Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. Do not cut your bodies for the dead, and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. Well, crap. <laughs> I shaved my head, I shaved my beard, mostly because I can't grow one, and I have tattoos, several of them, and I'm a pastor. Am I in trouble? Well, no, right? <laughs> for other reasons besides that. <laughs> this is a ceremonial law of God. You see, what's happening is that the pagan nations surrounding Israel at that time would include these practices as a part of how they worship their false gods. And so God says, this should not be a part of how you worship me, because how you worship me is completely and totally different. This is ceremonial laws for the people of Israel. Second thing you have to remember when it comes to the law of God is that Jesus summarizes the whole law in two statements, love God and love your neighbor. Matthew 22, there's this beautiful story where he's approached by a religious leader, and he says, which one of the greatest commandments? Jesus, tell us, what do we need to follow? He says the whole law can be summarized in two ones, two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. At its core, God's law is a law of love. As you're reading through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, as you're parsing through whether this applies and how does it apply to me, it's important to not forget that God, first and foremost, is laying down a law of love. This is governing how his people should love him and love one another. Third important thing to remember about the law is that Jesus came not to abolish God's law, but to fulfill God's law. It says this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. You see, the law was how the Israelites, by faith, would live as God's people and be right with him. And Jesus says, I've come not to get rid of that, but to fulfill it, which means everything God gave his people in the law is both followed perfectly by Jesus and also completed in Jesus, which is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came perfectly following and fulfilling God's law. So all of us who put our faith in him are now credited as if God, as if Jesus' perfect righteousness is our perfect righteousness. So when you put your faith in Jesus, regardless of how you've been living or will continue to live, if you have repented of your sins, put your faith in him, his perfect ability to follow the law is now applied to you. That's the good news of the gospel. That God now sees you with Christ's perfect record in Jesus. So what does all of that mean for how we apply and read Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22? I think it means this. That while this particular law, which is a civil law for the Israelites, 
might not have bearing on our society as a whole today, right? You don't have to go out next election and vote into law a new practice on harvesting grain. That's not what it's about. It's direction of love for God and love for neighbor still applies to us today as a principle. A principle completely and totally fulfilled by Jesus, even as he empowers us to live into it today. So then, the question becomes, what is the principle? And how do we apply it? Here's how I would summarize what this command calls us to today in 2022 as followers of Jesus. There are things God has given to you that were never meant for you. That's the principle. You're reading Deuteronomy 24 as a New Testament follower of Jesus. Here's what you have to see. There are things God has given to you that were never meant for you. There is some amount of financial provision that God has blessed you with. For some of us large, for others of us small, that was never actually meant for you but was meant to be redirected by you to the needs of others. And just like the Israelites are told, set aside intentionally some of your crops, leave behind some of your harvest, we too are called to sacrificially, at great cost to ourselves, and intentionally, not as we are able, but with great purpose, leave behind some of our income as set apart for those in need around us. In the economy of God's kingdom, where our view of possessions changes based on deep love for God and deep love for neighbor, the call of Jesus would be that perhaps we shouldn't spend or save or even invest all of our income on ourselves. But this is going to be hard for us. This is where I want to spend most of the time applying. This is why this is going to be difficult for us. We as a society are not great with the idea or practice of margin. Leaving things on the edges creating space in our lives, not using up everything we have. This is really noticeable in how we spend our time. I think we feel this really tangibly in that, right? We're constantly frantic and hurried and busy. We're constantly filling up. If I have an hour, I'm going to spend that hour on something, right? We're constantly maxing out our schedules, not creating margin in our time, constantly hurried and rushing and rushing to the next, to the next to the next, but I also think we don't know how to live or create margin in our finances, in our budgets. Here's what I mean. Just like that man or that family who goes out a time and time and time again to make sure they collect everything they have, we too push our income to its absolute limits. Something all of us are drawn to and susceptible to, to and even told in our society that's the best way to live. For example, if you look at your budget and you need an apartment, and you see, okay, I can spend, based on my budget, $900 a month on an apartment. Chances are you're going to go out and spend $900 on an apartment. If you say, okay, I need a car. I can spend $10,000 on a car. Chances are you're going to go out and you're going to spend $10,000 on a car. We default to pushing our income to its absolute limits. We raise our standard of living to match our level of income. And I would even argue the reason why we said in week one that the average American has $16,000 of consumer credit card debt is because we don't only push our income to its absolute limits, we go above and beyond our income. So we don't just say, how many olives can I get off of my plates? I'm going to go borrow somebody else's olives at a reasonable 20 to 25% rate. <laughs> It's actually not just my anecdotal evidence, though. This is actually a psychological concept. It's called lifestyle creep. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Here's what it means. Lifestyle creep, excuse me, is when an individual's standard of living increases as their income increases and former luxuries become new necessities. Let me say that again. Lifestyle creep is when an individual's standard of living increases as 
as their income increases and former luxuries become new necessities. That's not my definition. That's psycho, psycho, psychology today, I think. Uh, it's not just me. It's, it's legit. I'm seeing this play out firsthand in my own life. Uh, when Lindsay and I first got married, we were both full-time students in seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky, and working part-time for a church. And when I say part-time, I mean part-time, and we were getting paid like it. Uh, but we made it work. We scrounged uh, pennies together for the first two years. I can tell you stories. Some of the stories are hilarious. Some of them are not as funny. Uh, but we made it through. We made it through the first two years of our marriage. And then we graduated, and we moved back to Columbia, South Carolina, and we both got full-time jobs with salaries. And I remember for the first few months, it was like, there's no way that we were going to be able to use all this money. Like, there's no way we're going to be able to spend it or say, like, what do we do? This is wild. Like, this is crazy. And it was like intro starter salaries, but it just felt like so much for like the first three months. And then about three months in, you know what I found myself saying? How are we ever going to afford some of this stuff? How are we going to pay our mortgage? How are we going to pay for our cars? How are we going to pay for health insurance? Do you know how expensive health insurance is? How are we going to afford this? We literally can't. Now here's the reality. While I may have felt like we literally couldn't, that was a factually inaccurate statement. I may have felt it, yes, I feel like we can't afford this, but it was factually inaccurate. You know why I can say that with such confidence? Is because six months earlier, we were living with less and making it work. But over time, what had happened, and it's me because I'm the spender in our family, is that because we had discretionary income, that there were some things, because we had the margin to do it, that I started adding into my life. Good things, fine things, but once. Things that I was perfectly okay six months earlier not having as a part of my life had now begun to, okay, I want them and we have the margin to, and suddenly I blinked and six months later, once had turned to needs. Could haves turned into must haves. That is lifestyle. And I'll be willing to bet that for those of, most of us in the room, there are things like that for us. I bet there are things right now in your monthly expenses that you have convinced yourself are needs that are actually wants. Maybe for you, it's the latte every morning on the way to work. Maybe for you, it's I gotta have Netflix and Disney Plus and Discovery Plus and Apple TV Plus and ESPN Plus. It's a lot of pluses. <laughs> Maybe for you, it's eating out three times a week, four times a week, five times a week or more. Maybe it's a certain brand of clothing. Maybe it's another set of sneakers. Whatever it may be, fill in the blank. And listen, it doesn't have to be a bad thing at all, right? It could be a good thing that at some point you had the margin to spend it on, and so you just started including it as a part of your life. And at some point, without you noticing it, it could have or it want became a must-have in a need. And listen to me. I want you to hear me really clearly on this. Doing that can absolutely be marvelous. I actually think the Lord delights when we take joy in his gifts. I think that's part of the reason why food tastes good. And there's such a thing as seasoning, right? Because God wants us not just to eat in a utilitarian, let's just feed our body and move on manner. He wants us to delight in some of the gifts that he has given us. The danger comes when lifestyle creep prevents generosity. That's the point of Deuteronomy. The danger comes when lifestyle creep prevents generosity. Because here's what so often happens. When we've pushed our income to its absolute limits and an opportunity for generosity comes up, our response in those moments is to conclude, quote, I just can't. We look at our budget, we look at our finances, we look at all the different ways it's allocated, the ways that we've pushed our income to its absolute limits already, and our budget really does seem to tell us we can't afford to be generous. But, and I want you to hear me really clearly on this, that is actually true for some of us. I want to be really clear on that. 
for some of us in the room, there are actually some of us who cannot afford to be generous right now. Some of us were in school, and it's like, I literally don't make an income. Like, I, I'm scraping it by, I'm very, like, I get that. For some of us, we've had some tragedies happen recently. We've got to pay for some stuff on our house, a pipe burst, and it's like, I gotta have a living room. It's like, yes, you do have to have a living room. There's a whole host of reasons why, that for some of us, this is a very real reality, that we literally can't. But my guess is, for the majority of us in the room, when we say, I can't afford to be generous, what we actually mean, myself included, is not, I can't afford to be, but rather, I can't afford to continue living the way I'm currently living and be generous. And that's very different, church. Being able to say, or saying, I can't afford to be generous right now, is very different than saying, no, I can, I just can't without great cost to myself, or my standard of living or things I've convinced myself are necessities. We've decided, listen, I want to be generous, I just can't right now. What we mean is, I want to be generous, but I just don't want to change my lifestyle right now. And here, it brings it back to eight-year-old Timmy in second grade Mrs. Byers' classroom. There is a distinct difference, church, between can't and won't. There's a very big difference between can't and won't. And just so we're clear, Generosity when we have excess is difficult. When you're like, I got some, what do you need? How can I help? That's hard enough, right? To not spend that on ourselves, to use that for what we want, even for good things. But generosity, when we feel tight, or when it's going to cost us something, that without the power of the Holy Spirit is almost impossible. But that's the beautiful invitation of Jesus. Let me just show you what this might look like. I've heard some really beautiful stories of this in our church over the past couple of weeks as we've been considering the generosity of God and our generosity in response. So uh, last week, I was having a conversation with a couple in our church, and they were telling me about all the different things they're excited to do in their house. They just bought a house recently, and they had all of these plans like you do when you move into a house. It's like X, Y, Z, A, B, C, we're going to do all of these things, and just we're just going to go for it. And they were trying to be good stewards of their money. And so what they did is they actually set aside all of their kind of flexible savings, and they said, okay, we, we want to keep our emergency fund. We're going to use this one by one kind of uh, set apart for different ones of those projects. And they, I mean, they budgeted down to zero dollars. They were like, this project is this much, this project is this much. We want to be good stewards, and these are the things we want to accomplish. But they got alone and with each other, with the Holy Spirit, after we started preaching about this and talking about this, and they were under conviction, and the Holy Spirit moved and spoke and shaped their hearts, and they realized, hey, we actually don't know this money. Everything we talked about week one and week two, this is not actually ours. This is actually the Lord's. Might he have us use it in a different way than we were planning? Might he actually use this in a different way? And I was talking to them about this sermon coming up, and they said, oh yeah, we realized we went over our proverbial crops a second time and a third time and a fourth time and didn't realize maybe God's actually calling us to intentionally and sacrificially create some margin so that we can give and be generous. And so they actually just cut several of the projects. They're like, we're just not going to do this. Maybe in the future, maybe eventually, but right now we're just not going to do it because we want to give and we want to give generously. That's beautiful. Now, would it be wrong for them to go, no, we're just not going to do that. We're going to do our own thing and we're going to do these projects. No, we're not. This, they're prerogative. They're allowed to do that, but how much more beautiful in the kingdom of God is their sacrifice? Yeah. Same story of another couple in our church. They um, heard about what we're doing, thought about it, was just kind of considering their giving and their generosity on a more monthly basis. Last a one-time gift to the offering, and we're just, hey, as we're being generous throughout. And immediately, they were just like, well, we have zero room in the budget. 
like they run a zero sum budget, Dave Ramsey style, right? It's like everything's accounted for, spending, saving, giving, like we're not, we're not, we don't have any room. There's no room for us to increase in our ongoing generosity. But same thing, the Holy Spirit worked and moved and spoke and changed and shaped and shifted their hearts. And they realized, hey, could we just take one more look at our budget? Can we just go through line by line? And might there be some things in here where we actually have decided that there must have and really there could have? And we actually, at cost to ourselves, at a sacrifice of our current standard of living or things we enjoy, might actually cut some of these things out to be generous and give glory to God. Let me just encourage you, how beautiful of a gospel picture could that be to their neighbors? Can you imagine? I mean, just imagine with me. Their neighbor coming over and being like, what do you guys want to do? Let's watch Netflix. Oh, actually, we don't have Netflix. We cut Netflix out of our budget so we could give more in generosity. That's countercultural discipleship. That's crazy. And that is deeply offensive if we are more American than we are Christian. That I would even have us consider the weight of Deuteronomy 24 for our lives and for our budgets. It's deeply offensive if we don't remember that the first and foremost actually all belongs to God and not to us. And any call he makes for us to sacrifice is first and foremost something he did for us. Because notice, this takes us back to our original principle, right? There are things God has given to you that were never meant for you, right? There's financial provision God has given to you in expectation that you would pass it along to someone else. And we tend to think, as Americans, what can I afford? When this passage would challenge us to think, what should I afford? But the reason for that is because of what that finances is for. Look at verse 19 again. See if you notice this phrase that Moses repeats three times. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf or a bundle in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. But the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Notice that phrase three times. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Not, it would be nice for you to consider. Not, it would be great for you to do if you have some left over. Not, hey, potentially think about doing this. No, it shall be for. Meaning, in God's eyes, it actually rightfully belongs to this, these vulnerable groups of people. That because it's his, and he gives freely, he has given it to you, not to own, but to manage and to steward, and not to stay with you, but it's actually for someone else in that's what Deuteronomy challenges us to. Because it all ultimately belongs to God, he has decided in his good purposes that actually part of how he's going to get it to others is through you. That's just beautiful. This is why, that's why this is an invitation, right? In the midst of it being a command and an exhortation, it is also an invitation because God could decide, hey, I'm just going to care for those people on my own. God could decide, you know what? I'm just going to give them grain. I'm just going to reroute it away from you. I'm just going to give it directly to them. But he doesn't. Notice what he says. There are things in your crops that is for them. There are things in your fields that is for them. It's an invitation of generosity. That we would see this and go, okay, God has chosen to give me things that were never meant to stay with me, but meant to go to those in need. And we do this, and here's where I want to land this, once again, in light of the gospel. That God never asks us to do something he has not first done. And he has, first and foremost, sacrificially and intentionally given himself to us. Look back at me at Deuteronomy 24. Look at what God grounds this command in. It's not a, not a throwaway sentence. It, it grounds the whole command. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, 
Therefore, I command you to do this. He says, hey, leave some behind. It's not for you. It's for the sojourner. It's for the foreigner. It's for the widow. And you shall remember that you first and foremost were in need. Therefore, you shall do what I command you. He says, don't forget, Israel, you were slaves. Don't forget, you were under the oppression of Egypt. Don't forget, you had no land. Don't forget, you had no crops. Don't forget, you were wandering in the desert, and I provided for you with bread from heaven and water from a rock. I split the Red Sea so that you could walk across in, in safety and freedom. Do not forget what I have done for you, Israel. Therefore, do the same for others. Do not forget the way I provided for you and cared for you when you had nothing. The reason you had this land is because it was my promised land to you. Do not forget that. Therefore, remember, it does not belong to you. It belongs to me, and I have declared it's for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And that's what we're invited into, to remember that just like God brought Israel out of slavery, he too has brought all of us who are in Christ out of our own slavery as well, has it not? Has he not also seen us in our captivity? Has he not also seen us in our wandering? Has he not also seen us in our great need? Has he not also seen us without hope, without provision, and given of of himself sacrificially and intentionally so that we could be provided for and cared for? Is that not the good news of Advent? Is that not the shock of 2,000 plus years ago in a manger in Bethlehem that God would look on us with nothing, without hope, and yet give himself to us? great sacrifice, a great cost to himself. So he calls us to do the same for others. To remember, church, do not forget that we too were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, we obey God's word. I want to end with a story that I think really puts this on display. I was reminded of this story uh, over Thanksgiving break, I was hanging out with a friend of mine from college, and we were just doing what you do when you hang out with friends from a decade ago. You just tell stories, right? And we were, we were catching up on some things, and I was reminded um, of a story that, or something that happened in his small group in college. Uh, so he was in a small group similar to a lot of the community groups that we do here, except it was all guys age 18 to 22, which you can imagine is both fun and messy um, in multiple ways. And he said there was this, this, uh, there was this guy in the group that, his, we'll call him Cody, and Cody was paying his way through school, uh, doing kind of school part-time, working as much as he can, and his job to pay his way through school, rent, tuition, all of that was as a pizza maker at Pizza Hut. That was what he did. He made pizzas, all that good stuff. One day, Cody was on his way to work, and somebody ran a red light, and they T-boned him. And thank the Lord he was okay, everything was all right with him, but his car was just completely totaled. And he needed a way to get to work. He couldn't pay for his own rent, he couldn't pay for school, he couldn't provide for himself, all of those kinds of things. And so the guys got together uh, without him, and they said, hey, we need to step in for Cody. We need to take care of Cody. We need to do something to provide for him. Let's collect some money, right? Let's put our money together. Let's pay Cody's rent for this month while he's without work, and then let's buy him a car. Like, that'd be so cool. Yes. You know, like 19-year-olds do. They're like, yes, let's do it. Let's go. It's so exciting. Here's the problem. They were all full-time college students. I mean, they were making, like, max, like, 50 bucks a month. Like, this is not, how are we going to pull this off? And they're like, hey, let's give ourselves a month. Let's see what we can do. And so they all kind of, you know, go about their week, whatever, and they show up the next week to group, and Cody's not there. Uh, so they're able to kind of, hey, how's it going? Like, how's, like, checking in? Like, has anybody been able to do anything? And one guy sits down in the group, and he just takes out a wad of $500 and just slings it on the table. They're like, bro, wait a minute. Like, you work at Chick-fil-A. Like, how? How? 
are you in trouble with the police? Like, what happened? Why do you have $500 cash? And he was like, well, you know, I just figured I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any to give out of my monthly expenses. Like, I couldn't just go, like, wait and make a bunch of money. And, but when I help Cody, I want to be generous. And so I sold my PlayStation and my Xbox and some clothes. And so here's 500 bucks. My friend says it just lit a fire under the rest of the guys. They were like, hey, we can do this too. And so over the next three weeks, I mean, they are doing everything it takes to help raise the money for Cody. One guy throws a benefit concert in his front yard, just secretly under the, the pretense of, hey, we're doing a benefit concert. If you want to donate to whatever, just don't tell Cody. This is for Cody. <laughs> Others of them sold things that they had. They, they called friends and family. Hey, do you have any money? Can you give to this guy? Like, how can we be helpful? One of them, I remember, called me. They were like, hey, you're, I was like, I'm in seminary. I'll try. What do you want from me? <laughs> Beautiful. And they rallied together. And at the end of the month, they were able to hand Cody $2,500 in cash. Half a dozen college guys. $2,500 in a month. All working part-time, all full-time students. They were able to pay his rent and buy him a moped. Not a car, but books. <laughs> <laughs> what if that wasn't just a really cool story from a decade ago? My temptation in hearing that story is, man, I was full of faith when I was in college. Like, I was really ready to do some radical stuff for Jesus before life got in the way. Like, I was really ready to sell some stuff, to be generous, and to put myself on the line when there felt like there was less at stake. Because there's less at stake when you're 19, right? It's not a, a, if you're 19 in the room, this is not like a knockout. There's just less at stake, right? It's like, if I, if I can't, you know, well, I'm gonna, I'll eat like the $1 little season or something, like, I'll be fine. It's a little ball game when you start having rent to pay, a car to pay for, Kids to feed, a mortgage, it's a whole different ballgame. Church, let me challenge us. What if that was not just cool things we did in faith when we felt like we didn't have much to lose? What if we actually said, no, the gospel's real, and it's true, and I'm going to sacrificially give in response? What if we as a church became known for stories like that? What if a decade from now, Lord willing, maybe we'll be in this space, maybe not, who knows. I was able to get up and say, hey, a decade ago, guess what happened in our church? These folks who didn't have much to give, who were, went in to a series like Give Like God saying, nah, that's not for us, though. we just can't. And it got moved, we got stirred something, and we said, hey, maybe I have a PlayStation so myself. Maybe I have some clothes I don't need. Maybe I have some space in the budget. Maybe I don't need nine different streaming services for the one show I watch on each. <laughs> Might the good news of Jesus be real enough that we would lift it up? Might we actually put into practice the words of James that we're not hearers of the word but doers of the That we not read in Deuteronomy 24 and go, man, that sounds like a cool idea to care for the poor. Might it be something we do as well? The gospel would change us so much. We pray for this. Lord, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for King Jesus. Lord, I, I don't want us to miss the fact that you never call us to something that you don't first do for us. God, and you, creator of the universe, king over all, was not too great to sacrifice. And yet you were great in your sacrifice because it's in your sacrifice that our sins are paid for we're washed clean, that we're made new. Lord, so I pray first and foremost that you would make us a gospel people. 
We've got a group of BA people that don't just acknowledge the good news of Jesus in our heads. We don't grow cold to just some theological principles or ideas, Lord, but we would actually be a people who want to be changed and shaped by the good news of Christ. Marked differently than the rest of society. Lord, you are creating a new people for yourself. Lord. I pray that would be true in all aspects of our life, including our finances. Lord, I pray that we would not walk out of this room thinking, man, that was some really fun stuff to learn about the law. But we would not walk out of this room going, man, I, I got some more theological knowledge. Awesome. Or that we would not walk out of the room going, man, worship, mm, felt the spirit. Or that we would walk out under deep conviction from you to be a people who practice what you're saying. To give of our own selves, at cost to ourselves. Lord, would you this week make our budgets unignorable that we must get alone with you in front of our computers going, okay, where am I going to cut for the sake of the kingdom? What am I going to sell for the sake of the kingdom? How am I going to give for the sake of the kingdom? Lord, would you push down our cynicism? Would you push down our busyness? 